Welcome back to our podcast, Cheeky Vibe, Peaceful Life, and I'm here with my co-host and a special guest today. My name is Michelle Moss, and we are here with our friend, Michelle Tilstra. Hi, Michelle. Hi. How are you today? Oh, wonderful. How are you? Good, good. You said you had a rough morning and, and just rough week, so we can relate to that, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners can too. It's like getting here and just take, okay, we're here. So we want to talk to our listeners about um, what's coming up. Um, we're recording this a little early, but it will be coming out in October for Breast Cancer Awareness Month. So we've invited some of our friends who have survived and gone through the, the journey to health. Um, and then we're also going to have um, a nurse practitioner who works in an office, an OBGYN office, come in and share some um, prevention and symptoms and that kind of stuff. That'll be the first week in October. But we definitely wanted to um, have our friend Michelle share her journey to health. And that's what I've been calling it. Um, I'm not sure what you call it, Michelle. But um, so how long ago was your diagnosis of breast cancer made? Uh, almost exactly seven years ago. Yeah, I was just looking at the date because I remember getting my mammogram right before Labor Day weekend and um, found out that there was a problem or that they wanted me to come back. Um, so they called me on the Tuesday after Labor Day to tell me that I needed to come back. Um, and so it was just a mam mammogram, a standard mammogram. I was, I had just turned 40. Um, was that your first baseline? No, actually, it wasn't. I had a baseline when I was 38, and that is because uh, breast cancer runs in my family. I, uh, my maternal grandmother passed away from breast cancer, and I have a maternal aunt with breast cancer. My mom had had double mastectomies, actually, as a um, preventative because she had had multiple benign tumor, tumors that had been removed, so she just had a mastectomy early, so we don't know if she would have developed cancer or not. Um, so anyway, because of those multiple family history, we started, I started early with mammograms. So I had a baseline at 38 and then at 40, I went um, and had another mammogram and that was the one where they called me and said, Hey, there's a problem. We need you to come, come back in. What, was you, what did you think when you heard that? Uh, initially, I, I wasn't too concerned because um I had rather small breasts and I had heard that sometimes um, for mammograms that um, they can be quite dense. And so sometimes it's hard to see everything they need to see. So I really wasn't overly concerned about it. I just thought, oh, we got to go back in, you know, do a little bit more in-depth look at what's going on. Um, and so that was kind of my mindset that week. So I went back for the second mammogram and then they called me within 24 hours to say that there was still a concern and that they basically, at least what I remember, it's been seven years, what I heard was there were five grains of sand on in my mammogram and one of the grains was squiggly. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, like that was something concerning that they needed to um, do a... Um, you know, a biopsy. <laughs> I'm having a little bit of Warren's problem this morning with my brain fog. <laughs> like we said, it was a, it's a rough morning and a rough <laughs> week. Did you, have, did you have any other symptoms other than the mammogram, what the mammogram detected? 
no. And in fact, even I had the nurse show me where exactly on my breast, because it was on my left side. It's, I want to know where this is. I want to know, did I miss something? Um, and no, I, there was nothing to feel. It was actually against my chest wall. Um, and so there was just no way, even after knowing exactly where it was, that I could not feel any, any changes, anything whatsoever. Well, when you think about grains of sand, which I've had that, I've heard those same words come at me. I mean, you can't even imagine something so small right. to be. No, I always thought it would be something you could feel. Yeah. And, it, and again, it different, it's very different for, for different people and different, you know, different forms. So um, you said you hadn't had, your, you had your baseline at 38. It's, it's interesting because I had my baseline at 35 and I don't know, I didn't have any reason to, but that was kind of where the pendulum was back then. Yeah. I haven't had one yet. Yeah. But now is, is it, do you know, is it 40 around 40? Well, you know, there's different cool information. <laughs> yeah. comes out and I get really upset about it. Honestly, um, when they push the age farther and farther only because I, mean, I was 40 when I was diagnosed and, I'll talk a little bit, but I joined like a support group and I will tell you that I was the oldest one in the support group. So several women in their twenties, some in their thirties. And so I get really upset when they start saying, Oh, you don't need to worry about this till after 40. And I'm not, I'm not one that says, Oh, you need to worry and spend all your life worrying. But if you have a family history, right. some mm -hmm. kind of um, predisposition to this is not something to just say, Oh, I'm not going to, think about that until I'm 40. I think it is something that, you know, you should at least be proactive and in getting some preventative testing just to make sure that everything's fine. Right. So how, what did your treatment regimen look like? So the day that you went back and you said there was still more to be looked at, where did it go from there and, and take us through that journey of, um, um, to health? Okay. So then they scheduled uh, what's called a stereotactic biopsy. Uh, which means you um, go in and you uh, lay face down and they, yeah. Um, and they basically put a needle through your breast tissue um, using x-rays um, based on that mammogram that came in that already showed exactly where it was. So they put the needle in and try and get the tissue out, but they also take an x-ray while it's still, the needle's still in to make sure that they're in the right spot. Um, so if anyone, again, I'm not trying to promote fear, but don't let them ever tell you that it is not painful because they lie. So <laughs> It's kind of confusing to me because I had that same horrific barbaric thing done. And even the nurse after I got done and had to have another mammogram with my, after that procedure, yes. like it's a very barbaric procedure. Um, and I understand that they, they need to do some things, but you end up having the lumpectomy anyway. <laughs> I know. That's I'm not sure what the whole point of it is. So I'm not sure that maybe, you know, maybe Rochelle can explain that when she's on. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> there's much justification for that. Horrific thing. It yeah, because I had the same thing. So they do this, you know, biopsy, and then they want you to go in and do another mammogram. So you've just had needles put through your breast tissue, and then they want to smash it all different ways. So just so you know, you they can do mammograms with you sitting. Um, I insisted on it. I was, I was actually woozy and not feeling well. And I said, there is no way I can stand at this machine. So they were able to accommodate that. So I think that's just something to know. Very important to, for our listeners to hear is to advocate for yourself. 
and say what you need. So many times we're so, oh, mm-hmm. we're people pleasers as women and we're stoic and we can handle it. If, if you need something, you need to say it. Right. Okay. Yeah. Alicia. Um, so they mainly stay there um, until at least a radiologist had looked at it to determine if they had gotten everything they needed to get and that they had been able to see on the mammogram because they put a little uh, like a metal piece in to kind of mark where they had done the um, biopsy. So they want to make sure they have all of that before you leave. Um, and again, I think it was a matter, oh, I think that was on a Thursday because I remember having to wait through the whole weekend. Um, and Monday, because of some connections I might have, I was aware that the results were in, but no one would tell me what the results were. So I had to go um, to my family physician and I called the office and they wouldn't tell me the results and said that I needed to bring up someone with me and I had to come in after hours. And so, I mean, right then. Ironically, without telling you the results, by saying all of those things, you basically knew that the news was kind of not going to be Yes. Good. So I, I did something that I don't know if I would advocate for everyone. I happen, happen to have a medical background um, and happen to know that you can go to a hospital where you have a test and you can re- request your own results from the actual um, lab and just have a printed results. And so I actually went there and I told them that I wanted a copy of it and then I just folded it over. I didn't look at it but my sister was in the facility at the time. Um, she was actually having some other medical stuff going on. And I went where she was and I said, I need you to just sit here with me. I want to read this. Um, and I remember flipping open the page and the first word on the page was, I had my name and it had the words carcinoma. And so when you see carcinoma, which is cancer, mm-hmm. um, you know, on the same paper with your name, I just, I just lost it, you know, was just sobbing and crying. And I, I just needed that moment. Um, I didn't need anyone to take it away from me. It's just a moment that you just, you need to mourn that and to feel that and allow, allow myself to feel that. Um, so important too, to feel your feels. We talk about that all the time. And like you just said, mourning, grieving, that whole way of life that you were, the normalcy that you're lost. Mm-hmm. But you were with someone, you had a support network, and I'm sure that's always going to be another piece that we're going to talk about is having that support network. Okay, so you were with Sissy, (laughs) (laughs) and she helped you get through, she was with you just to support you. Right. And what was the next step? Um, So the next step was then, you know, you try to find a surgeon or someone that you... um, trust, you know, it is about trust and like, who did I feel comfortable with? And again, I I think I can sometimes be my own worst enemy is because I I know just enough about it to make it where it was more anxious. Yeah. Um, So I think I was a little bit, honestly, more judgy about physicians and what their opinions were and things like that. So um, I made an appointment with a local physician, went and met with him. So initially I was kind of interviewing the uh, breast surgeons because I knew that I was going to have to have some kind of surgery and I just wanted their thoughts on what I should do. How many many did you interview? I went to three different ones. Again, Again, I have to hit pause for a second. I want our listeners to hear this too. This is so important. We sometimes think of doctors and they're 
wonderful and intelligent, but we think of them as gods and we listen and we don't necessarily look around and, and get more opinions. So I, I think that was really smart. Well, and the first one I felt like um, did not listen to me. And I, he's, I mean, he's well known in the area. I would never mention a name or anything. It was, it's more about, I just felt like I, he wasn't listening to my concerns. Um, and, and basically told me that I was just as likely as any other 40 year old white woman to have cancer, that my, my past didn't matter, my uh, family background didn't matter, and that I should stop calling it cancer. It wasn't cancer because it was um, considered stage zero, mm -hmm. um, which now I know they, they, they've changed some of the terminology and they try to call that pre-cancer, but kind of spent 20 minutes trying to convince me that I needed to stop using the word cancer. And uh, I was, you know, okay, it's not like I wanted to have cancer, but I'm, you know, I saw the words on my own lab report. I know that there was, you know, you can't undo that, but I was kind of a little distraught after that doctor's appointment. And I remember going home, I was talking to my family and my um, son, my middle son, he was 13 years old at the time. And I remember him looking at me and he said, mom, do you have one cancer cell? And I said, yeah, you know, one or a few. I don't know exactly how many. He said, if you have one cancer cell, you have cancer. Don't let anyone tell you. To that 13-year-old. Yes. And I'm like, how, you know, because it was almost like a, he was belittled, the, the, I felt, and maybe he didn't mean that, but I felt like belittled or, you know, like that my fears and my concerns, oh, just because they're calling it cancer, that's why you're reacting this way. No it's because it is cancer, it can progress to worse cancer. Yes, I acknowledge that it is, a, we caught this very early, I'm not denying that, um, but definitely need to be proactive, especially considering my family history. Absolutely. Uh, so then I went to a second physician and I thought she was, she was actually wonderful um, and, and listened to me and gave some really good options, but she was also very, very young. Um, and I just didn't have that confidence that I felt like I needed to have. I had a five-year-old, so I have three boys at the time. My youngest was five years old. I, you know, I, I need to be around long enough to see him grown. I don't, this is not something I wanted to mess around with. And I just, I just needed to have that confidence. So I ended up at the Cleveland Clinic uh, with a physician up there who had been doing this for quite a while, she actually went through all the same things that the second physician did. So it kind of confirmed, but I just felt more confident in her skills and her abilities and, and just some of the things that she talked to me about and really, really listened to me. Um, so, but I will say this to the listeners or anyone who might have to go through this. I find it interesting afterwards is like, I went through all of that to interview a breast surgeon, which was great. Um, but come to find out, the breast surgeon really it does your main surgery. She said she did half of my surgery <laughs> and then left the OR and the plastic surgeon came in and took over the rest of the surgery. And he did all of my follow-ups, everything. He managed my post-operative. You hadn't even met the plastic. I met him once. I didn't okay. mean it because she had actually recommended him. So, you know, like I trusted her. So she had recommended him. But I... I didn't interview plastic surgeon. I didn't, I didn't even think about that, but not realizing that really that's the person who makes a lot of the decisions and a lot of the post-op kind of things. So 
So we're talking about plastic surgeons. So then this comes to the the decision-making process of, do you have a lumpectomy? Do you have a mastectomy? Do you have a double? Then how did you make this decision and what were your options? Um, so the, the, the main recommendation or the primary recommendation was a lumpectomy followed by radiation. Mm-hmm. Um, however, um, a couple of the doctors that I talked to kind of cautioned me or, or said some things. And one of them was that I had extremely small um, breast tissue. And so the problem, I guess, would be if they did a lump, lumpectomy of this small breast, I would have almost no breast tissue left. And then they would radiate that. Um, it would make it nearly impossible or very difficult at the time. Now, I, you know, things may have changed. Um, to be able to do the plastic surgery that needed to do to um, to fix that, <laughs> and then I yeah, and then I even when I did meet with the plastic surgeon, he kind of said something that you know it's kind of funny and some people get offended, but I had lived with small breasts my whole life. But <laughs> he had said we don't really make implants that small, so <laughs> no matter what, no, like. No. Yes, your, your insurance has to, you know, they have to pay for you to have a matching set. So if we have to fix the one that has the cancer, we're going to have to do surgery on the other side to make them match. So no matter which way you look at it, you're going to end up with surgery on both sides. Mm-hmm. And so that was one of the like, oh, I, you know, if I'm going to have surgery on both sides, why not just start with nothing, make them equal um, and then I can remove all chances of the cancer coming back um, and then they would be equal. Um, so that was one of the primary reasons, honestly. It's easier for you to make that decision though, knowing that you have family history and deaths in your family due to breast cancer and all the other things and having your mother already having had double mastectomy, that that was an easier decision where somebody maybe doesn't have that. We have that hold on, you know, kind of thinking it differently. Absolutely. I mean, and there was definitely some other things that led up to that. And one of, another one was when I first met with the um, surgeon at the Cleveland Clinic, she um, had me go through an MRI and they actually found a couple suspicious areas on my right side. And so I had to go through an M, I had to have another biopsy, which was, um, uh, a needle biopsy that didn't work. They couldn't get to it. So I ended up having to have an MRI guided biopsy, which if you already, we already talked about the stereo tactic, multiply that by about 10 times worse. My gosh. The needles are bigger. You're in there longer time. I did take medication that time because I said, if this is worse than the first time, you are going to medicate me. At least twilight, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so after that, I said, you know what, I'm not, I'm not doing this. And even though that I had to wait three days, that actually came back negative. But I said, I cannot do this. Like every six months, I'm coming for an MRI. You're going to find these spots. That's what was going on with my mom. She kept having all these tumors. I cannot live every six months having to go through another biopsy. Oh, I have to go through the stress of, is this, is this the one or not the one? Um, and let's just be done with this. Eliminate, eliminate the problem. So right. your mom did that procedure like a fruit a few times before having them removed? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So 
Did you, so did, where, did you do the, any chemo or the radiation or is there none of that needed if you're having it all removed? Correct. So because I, I made the decision to have the most um, advanced treatment, surgical treatment that there was by having a bilateral mastectomy, um, there is no other treatment. So that bypass, that was another factor. So then I wasn't going to have to have radiation. They were not recommending chemo at the time. Uh, I did not have to go on tamoxifen um, because I didn't have any breast tissue left. So they weren't worrying about it reoccurring. I, I will tell you though, I mean, there are, there are negatives to making that decision. So I don't want anyone to think, oh, that's, that's the best decision. I, I think like Michelle was already saying, that was the best decision for me. Um, but there are negatives and the negatives would be, I mean, it's an extremely painful procedure. I had, um, you know, chest tube, uh, or drain tubes for a couple of weeks out of both sides. Um, I have scars under both breast tissue. I have zero um, sensation on either breast, nothing um, from like my, like, I don't know, right above my breast tissue to like mid, mid waist. I have no sensation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's something, you know, that, that starts to mess with your sexuality and, you know, you've already, I've already had breasts removed and now I, you know, I don't have that kind of sexual pleasure area that is kind of important for a lot of people. Um, and so there are some downsides to that, but I have to say mentally, um, after having the mastectomies, I realized how much of like, um, like worry I had had and, and that I had that kind of go away with having those surgeries and being able to just say, okay, now I don't, I don't need to worry about this. And that really is a big, big part of the wellness wheel. So knowing that you don't have that constant fear weighing you down and that's a relief. I'm going to ask you, this is personal, you don't have to answer it, but as far as rebuilding the breasts, do they look, did they do like tattooing or is extra skin for the nipple area? Like how did they redo that? So uh, because of where my um, cancer was, that it was against the chest wall, I actually qualified for what's called a nipple sparing procedure. Um, And that is that it's, it's rare that it actually can works. Um, But they, during the mastectomy, they um, try, they, everything's done from below the breast and they were able to kind of roll it up and they cleaned everything out and saved the skin and the nipple. And they did what's biopsies during the surgery of my actual nipple. And they sent them to the lab while I was still under. And they had warned me if any, if there was even one cancer cell in any of those biopsies, they would take my, take the nipple, but they didn't, um, they didn't find any cancer in those. So they actually were able to spare it. Um, however, there, there can be side effects with that too, as far as, you know, like you can still, because they're having to do so many biopsies in that it loses a little bit of blood flow and things like that. But I, I didn't have any of those side effects oh, except good. for, like I said, the no sensation there. So I was able to actually keep um, my original nipples. I still have them. Wow. And when I woke up from the double mastectomy, they had um, put in what's called um, space. It's spacer. There's another name for it. Mm, and I can't think of right this second, <laughs> but anyway, basically it's a sack of fluid that they put in 
Um, and then I had to go weekly and they would add fluid. So it's an expander is what it's called. Um, so I, they put that in both sides. So when I woke up, I had um, actually pretty close to, you know, my little tiny boobs <laughs> before. Um, so I, I didn't wake up to this, you know, like indentation on my chest, which I know some women do. And, you know, it's a pretty job. That expander is so that your skin stretches. So when they put the, the breast implants in, there's room. Right. Because yeah. then they do that every, I had to go back every week and they add fluid, which can be a little painful. You know, I, I always took a driver and took an anti-inflammatory and stuff um, because it can be a little painful, but not terrible. Um, and then they do that. It depends on what size you're going for and how much your skin will stretch. And there's a lot of you know, things that go into making those decisions. But then um, I had to go back in to have surgery two months later and they take out those expanders and actually put in Im implants. So then you had to go through the whole drainage things all over again? Wow. Right, again. Um, the second time around though, they don't stay in as long. I think it's, you know, it's not as long of a procedure um, and not as much drainage and, and fluids there. So, but still, yeah. That, and that's a little mentally challenging because you're just starting to feel better from your first surgery and then you have to go do it again but but it was like exchanging um rocks because they had gotten rock hard from you know like it's so tight in there for marshmallows <laughs> so exchange rocks for marshmallows so it made sleeping oh. better and more comfortable and yeah there were a, and I sang on the way in, I'm getting boobies for Christmas because it's right before Christmas. I was just going to say, what is the time frame from Labor Day getting the diagnosis to singing, I'm getting boobies for Christmas? I mean, obviously <laughs> that was the time frame. Yes. Okay. Yeah, the doctors thought that was hilarious. I'm like, that's just the way I cope. I don't know. Like, I, I'm not crying or whatever. I'm singing. And that's an interesting thing, too. You said your coping was humor, some, somewhat with humor. Speaking of, um, who was your support group and, and how did you feel supported? How was that? You know, I know you're strong with your, your husband and your, your three kids, but was there extended support group and how did you take that? Because I know you're a very independent woman. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's probably a whole different day discussion about that independence and how Honestly, I mean, my journey to wellness was really a lot about some of my own mental health and being, learning to accept help um, is huge because I was, I am a caretaker. I take care of everyone in my family. I already mentioned that I am in healthcare. I've always taken care of everyone else and I'm independent. I don't like people to do things for me. Um, and so that was really hard to be able to just sit back and you know, people brought me food. Strangers showed up at my door. <laughs> yeah, Miss Michelle was one of them and dropped off food. And, you know, people really kind of tried to show up for us in a, in a really amazing way. And so being able to just accept that and know that I, that was part of my healing was that I needed to rest and to let others do for me was important. And you know what else is important is that for other people who care about you or want to help or, you know, they want to do something concrete because they're helpless. They feel like they don't have control. So cooking a meal or, you know, doing your laundry or doing something for you helps people who love you or support you feel like they're doing something proactive because it's out of control, out of anybody's control. 
So they find ways to find that control. So again, listeners, allow people to help you if you have situations in any kind of area where you need help. Yeah. Well, and I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. Giving people some concrete things to do um, really does help. Um, people did, you know, people brought me food, but they also brought flowers. They, somebody made a blanket for me. Somebody brought me slippers, magazines, videos. Uh, a couple of people would just come over and watch movies with me just so I didn't, I wasn't alone. Mm-hmm. Um, having somebody, I had a neighbor who had been through cancer previously and I was um, binge watching a show where a, a lady there had breast cancer and she was looking in the mirror and um, just experiencing all these feelings that I had kind of shoved down. Like I, I already talked about, you know, I had that emotional kind of breakdown the day I got diagnosed. But from there, I was in like, okay, what do I need to do? Task mode. Task. Yeah. Okay, show me what I need to do. I need to make this decision. Let's get this done. Let's get to the surgery. Let's do everything. So it was really like about a week or so after that first surgery, when I finally kind of felt something again, you know, like allowed myself to really grieve that, like what has just happened to me. Um, And I started crying and then I couldn't stop. And I know it was just all these emotions that had been building up. And so I ended up calling my neighbor and saying, you know, you will understand this. Can you just come sit with me? And my sister, come, just come sit with me. I don't need anybody to make it better because there's no making it better. But I just need somebody to, to just abide. I use the word abide with me, you know, like just, just sit in this space with me and be okay with grieving. Okay. And that, it's you know, interesting that at that point, you recognized that you needed to reach out for help you know, the strong, stoic, independent person finally got to the point where saying, yeah, you know what? I do need people around me. I do need my support network, which is a transition from where you're, you know, it's hard to do that. So that's, that's, that's pretty amazing. And it's, and it's a blessing that you had people that you could call. Oh, absolutely. Be with you. So did you learn anything about yourself during this journey to health? (laughs) Well, I think, you know, the, like I said, kind of that biggest part is being vulnerable. Um, is actually, I think it makes me a better human, <laughs> makes me more relatable. Um, having walked through some pain and frustrations and life doesn't go always as we expect it to go, but also being able to pull in the, that support network and realizing that people truly, people want to help and be there for you and to allow that it was really honestly huge learning for me um, and growth. And I, I, I still value that. And I still try to um, have try to continue that even now. Of, it's when okay to be that vulnerable. About being vulnerable. Were you not very open with your feelings and that stuff before? Oh, absolutely not. No. <laughs> Stuffed it all down. <laughs> yeah. Mm-mm. I mean, it still takes a lot to make me cry as far as that goes, but as far as being open and, you know, letting people in deep, a little deeper. Um, so I, I kind of had walls up and, you know, there's, there's been lots of therapy that's happened through that too that has helped with that. But I, I do see that as one of the pivotal points of my life of realizing that, you know what, being vulnerable is not, is not bad you know, and that you actually see the good in people. And how, um, and I know it's been seven years, but sharing your story, is it, is there some, is it cathartic to share? Does it, I mean, I know you've, you're beyond, you're 
you know, on the way on the other side, but even in the beginning, is it, you said you joined a support group and, you know, talk to other women. Did that seem helpful? Yeah. One of the support groups were actually other women who were going through similar things. So that group was, um, it was just a Facebook group and we actually met a few times, but it was great as far as, Hey, the doctors are recommending this. Who else has gone through this? What do you think? What has happened with you? Oh, we have to try this medication, you know, and you know, what do you guys think? So it was just nice to have other people who had kind of were ahead of me. I actually had another friend who was only six months ahead of my kind of my schedule and she ended up at the same physician, same doctors. So we had a lot as far as um, our stories to compare and we call them, you know, your best friends forever, because like once you have kind of that bond, it's, it, it's a trauma bond really, <laughs> but you know, you do, you, you have this unique bond with people that you never thought you would. Um, and so well, something like relatable about that, like you can't totally understand unless you've gone through a situation. Um, I definitely found that going like, even through my divorce and that. So I'm sure that made you guys closer. Mm -hmm. Well, okay. So you've learned what you learned about yourself is letting people in. Um, has your life changed since you've overcome, um, breast cancer? I mean, is there anything different about your life or anything that you see has changed? Well, I know one of the things was that I decided that I wasn't going to let anything stop me in accomplishing my dreams or things that I thought maybe I couldn't do, but should do. I don't know how to explain that better, but one of them was, you know, I had only run a mile in my life and I had friends that run half marathons and marathons and I'm like, oh yeah, that my body is not capable of doing something like that. And so I, I don't honestly know why, but I was determined after a year after my surgery to prove um, that I could do something that I never thought my body was capable of doing. And it was just that I needed to prove that cancer didn't beat me. And that if it's something that I set my mind to do and trained to do that I can do. And so I ran a half marathon almost a year to the day after um, I was diagnosed and my, my middle son actually ran it with me and it was amazing, but it was just that proof to me that, you know, if I decide to do something, you know, and God has given me the abilities and the body and the recovery to do that, that, you know, I can do that. And so that was something. And then a couple of years later I did, the, you know, I've always wanted to get my doctorate and you think, Oh, I can't do that. Oh, I'm getting too old for that. Or, and I'm like, no, I am not, I'm not letting other people's opinions define me. If I want to get my doctorate, I'm going back and getting my doctorate. And I did. And, you know, I still might do some more, I don't know. Um, but I don't. It's like that, not that there was a brush with death, but brush with the possibility of something negative turns it into what we always talk about. You didn't let fear hold you back for anything. You faced the biggest fear, really. Your, your health is your biggest, you know, our biggest fears, but a lot of us don't take it seriously or they, we don't think about it, but facing that biggest fear and then thinking there is nothing I can't try. And if I fail, okay, but there is nothing I can't try. And I think that's so important for our listeners to hear because we talk about, you know, the self-sabotaging and, and letting fear get in the way. And, you know, you, I can't believe you ran a half marathon a year to the date, you know, of, of, of having all these surgeries and diagnoses and, and then getting your doctorate 
by the way, congratulations, <laughs> that's awesome. Um, but she has a great job, by the way. Um, get to travel over the world and be all kinds of well, Corona's kind of yeah. limiting some of those travels. It's not going to be forever, so. <laughs> but that's really impressive. And that's a huge testimony to people that you can get through and overcome and do anything you put your mind to. Mm-hmm. And, and also, I love the advocating for yourself part. You know, sometimes we just so blindly go along with what people say. And I think that's a really important thing. Now, I, I'm saying that that's kind of advice, but do you have any, you know, advice for someone who's going through this battle and again each battle is different for every woman it's not the same or advice for women who are healthy i mean that's always an an interesting twist too i mean you're a survivor but here what would you say to healthy women or you know what do you think well the number one thing is get your mammogram i don't care what they say about oh you should wait you should wait If, if there's any family history get a baseline and if you're over 40 you really should go get them they're not as painful as people some people act I don't know. There, it, the most uncomfortable thing is that someone else is touching your breast besides you. <laughs> I just think that that's a little awkward and weird. And so, but if you get beyond that, um, I think it's it's definitely something you need to schedule. And honestly, I went back and thanked the secretary at my physician's office because I had gone to a doctor's appointment and she said, you know, you need to go get the mammogram. And it's one of those things where you go, yeah, yeah, I know I need to do it. But when I walked out, that secretary said, hey, she said you should get a mammogram. Let me call and schedule that for you right wow. now. That was huge. And I think more physicians' office should do that. And I know it takes an extra, it probably took her an extra five minutes to call and schedule that appointment. And because it was already scheduled, I'm like, oh yeah, I should just go and do it. Um, and yes, I know we're grown women and we should be able to do that on ourselves by ourselves. But how many of us put those things off? Um, Having you know? an accountability partner. Yeah. So that was huge. That she cared enough that you weren't just a um, client number or patient number. Mm-hmm. She looked at you and said, you really need to do this and push right. further. Yeah. And then for people who are going through any kind of honestly illness or, um, you know, kind of devastating diagnosis is, is also listen to your, your body and your own gut and your feelings about uh, what is going on and that your body has a way of telling you um, what you need to do about that. And I know that sounds really kind of, I don't know, out there, but I, I think it does. You, a lot of times we discount our own feelings and our own thoughts and thinking that we should always listen to someone else, but you are the one who knows your body the best. You know your own family history. You know what, you, what kind of levels of stress and anxiety you are living with. Um, so you need to advocate for yourself. Very good advice. Well, Michelle, we thank you so much for sharing your, your story and story to health and, and wellness and, and not just that, but getting a doctorate and having this great job at Walsh and doing all the things that you're doing and having three amazing sons and an amazing husband and all that good stuff that does come um, too. So thank you so much. We appreciate you sharing your story. Well, thanks for having me. I have one more question. What is the Facebook group you were in just in case? Oh any of our listeners well i it the one i did a a blog it's a cancer warrior blog i don't know if the the facebook group is probably still not active um so yeah it was michelle cancer warrior and that was actually another one of my coping strategies and not everyone does that and i know that but i i kind of blogged through all of my journey i love that Um, 
Yeah. So even from day one of diagnosis all the way through a year later of running the, uh, the half marathon. Do you, do you ever read it? Do you ever go back and read it? Yeah, actually, I was reading it this morning. So it's, how does it feel to read what you were feeling back then? Um, it's actually kind of amazing. And, um, you know, like, wow, I, you know, how far I've come since those times. And I, I mean, but it also brings back a lot of those feelings, too, of, you know, definitely the, the initial feelings. But you'll see my humor comes out in it, too, because, you know, I just like at the end of the day, it is what it is. And we're going to do what we need to do to get through this. And so and that seems to be your theme is using humor. So <laughs> I mean, we have laughter is the best medicine, right? Right. I agree. <laughs> All right. Will you stay on for a moment? All yes. right. Thank you so much, Michelle. We appreciate it. And um, as always, stay cheeky.